0: Welcome to Money Talks, my name is Mike Campbell. I sincerely appreciate you joining us, but you won't be disappointed this week. My goodness, we've got Robert Bryce, Power Hungry Podcast, but so many other things. Author, he, he writes in many journals, but now he's writing on Substack. Uh, you really want to check him out. But he's somebody who's been writing on the energy industry and was very early in some of the drawbacks for what we are hearing about renewable energy. He's a fact-based approach, research-based approach. I think you are going to absolutely, well, anybody who's still got an open mind, who wants to start and base their opinions on facts and research, is going to absolutely love it. I'm also going to be talking to Ozzy Jurek. Bottom line is, I can tell you, you're listening to the show that has been pointing out for a number of years, and I think very lonely at the time, about how government adds to the cost of housing. So I want to make it very clear what I'm saying. We are going to have a rental and an affordable housing problem that makes what we've experienced in the past pale in comparison. I'll talk more about that. Uh, As I say, much more coming on your show today. Uh, Some great shocking stat, uh, great goofy award, quote of the week, all of that kind of stuff. But first, I was just thinking this Thursday, by the way, is the deadline for people who are self-employed to file their income tax or have self-employed income, which, by the way, Again, this gets overlooked all the time. They pay double the Canada Pension Plan contribution. You know what? That's $7,000 for someone earning around 63 grand a year. 7000 Then you pay your taxes. Then I started thinking, yeah, you file on the 15th, Thursday. And just over two weeks later, July 1st, you have to send government your installment payment for 2023. And if you're a homeowner, property taxes are due first week of July. Come on, I don't think there's much doubt as who the heck you think you're working for. But it brings me back to the question, does government have the obligation to spend all of that money they are collecting as effectively and efficiently as possible? The problem is, that's clearly not a government priority, which had me thinking about a related question, something that comes to mind on a regular basis for me. But I'll I'll, I'll ask a question first. I hope this never happens, but if a loved one requires life-saving surgery, would you like the most qualified, the best surgeon to operate? How about when it comes to something straightforward like education, maybe of your child or your grandchild? Do you want them to be taught by the best teachers? Some someone who's inspiring? Or what about someone who's lackluster? Because you can find both in public education. I'm asking because I can't actually pinpoint the actual date when the whole concept of merit went out of fashion. Was it when we started to view virtually everyone as a victim of something like their ethnicity or their social background, gender, sexual identity? Was it when we viewed success as solely the product of exploitation or the result of privilege and nothing to do with hard work, ingenuity, long hours or dedication? Because it's obvious that merit and achievement as the basis for advancement and rewards, has given way to many other considerations. Maybe it's seniority or gender or uh, racial and ethnic balance, whatever. It's actually the stated policy of government and many other institutions where merit doesn't play a role. I mean, in highly valued professions like teaching and nursing, not only are the most mediocre workers paid the same as the most brilliant and dedicated ones, their representatives vehemently oppose any measure of performance, which could be the basis for remuneration. But here's the thing. The approach has consequences. And there's no better example than government, where measures other than their performance are used, and I know, few seem to care, yet we certainly care about excellence and performance when it comes to other things, like our sports teams, where the selection criteria is all about performance base. So... As a society, are we really saying that our hockey or football team's performance is more important than government activities like healthcare, education, or management of government departments or management of our money, where achievement and performance are secondary to other considerations? I mean, the recent public sector strike, I thought, was another example. There was no talk about performance. Yeah, there was talk about money, but no talk about what we get for it. No talk of performance, despite the massive increase in the size of the public sector, which has grown over 31%, uh, 79,000 new workers since 2015. As Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giraud stated on Money Talks not too long ago, Canadians should decide what specifically we got for all that extra money spent and people hired. Now, this isn't to say there aren't brilliant, productive, dedicated workers in the public sector. I'm simply saying that it's harder to tell because performance on way too many examples, isn't measured. And most time, achievement isn't measured or rewarded. I'm also saying that similar problems don't exist. I mean, they do exist, rather, excuse me, in the private sector. But we got a measurement in the private sector. It's called profit. Those performance measures are built into the actual nature of being in the private sector. But it's not so in the public sector. But it, the problem is, The lack of focus on merit, on achievement, is producing unacceptable results. I mean, come on, think about that wait for passports or medically unacceptable wait times. I mean, I don't know how anyone could be surprised at the relentless examples of waste exposed by both the Auditor General or the billions unaccounted for, pointed out by the Parliamentary Budget Office, when so many programs have no goals, no measures, no accountability, now, come on, I'm not, expect, I'm not expecting union leaders to ask the question. Their job is to protect their members, even the worst-performing ones. And you know what? Successive Auditor General Zola pointed out billions, tens of billions of dollars are spent without specific goals or measurable performance metrics. Heck, remember this? The Parliamentary Budget Office, what, was a month ago, two months ago? Said we have never done a cost-benefit analysis of any of the $60 billion spent on the green agenda. So it's not only impossible to know which programs are most effective, so we should double down, and we have no idea which workers are most productive and effective. But my point is, hey, we don't seem to care. Other factors have taken precedent over performance and achievement. Are we really surprised, though, when so many areas of government fail to perform? I don't know. I can't think of another example where we'd spend such a huge chunk of our paychecks without questioning, what do we get for the money? where we don't care about performance. We've let government perform an ever-expanding role in society, ever-expanding role in our lives. And as I said, this approach has consequences. It's starting to hit home that it's not merit-based employment or achievement is not measured in far too many areas. And as I say, hitting home with a vengeance. Hey, just a reminder, we've got Special Olympic Golf Tournament today up at Oceanside. We also have got the big one coming uh, down in Richmond, B.C., greater Vancouver area, starting on Thursday, July 15th. But the other thing is we have our online auction starting. We're going to send you out some notification. Check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, on mikesmoneytalks.ca. We'll let you know all about it. Your support would be greatly appreciated. Stay with us, So Terrific show plan for you. I've been looking forward to having this chance. You know, on Money Talks, I'm proud of the fact that we've been talking about the impracticality of the you know, renewable energy agenda. Well, I'll tell you someone who is, and we, we were early in this, I'll tell you someone who was a lot earlier, Robert Bryce, written for a ton of publications, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Forbes. But you know what? Many's better known now for the Power Hungry podcast, a terrific podcast. But it comes, it's terrific because of the information he brings to the public. And that's why, uh, you know, I take time to listen and read what Robert said. He, he wrote the book Power Hungry, The Myths of Green Energy and the Real Fuel of the Future. And I'm not sure if anybody was sooner in that or, you know, before that. No, he was on his own on that one, talking about the hard reality that we're going to need oil. We're going to need coal. We're going to need natural gas you know, if we're even going to do renewables. Uh, that's why I'm so pleased to, that he's found time for us here. Robert, thanks for finding that time.
1: Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Happy to be with you.
0: As I say, you've been immersed in this, uh, this broad subject, the broad energy subject for such a number of years. I know this is the Barbara Walters question, you know, but can you give me what you think the biggest myths are that are still prominent out there? I mean, we get inundated in Canada with our Uh, government talking about renewable energy. And to me, in a completely impractical manner, you know, we'll be zero, we'll be zero emissions by Tuesday.
1: Right. (laughs) I thought it was Monday afternoon. Yeah. uh, yeah, Okay. Tuesday. Yeah. We'll give them a little extra time. Uh, Biggest myths. Well, they are persistent and they are whoppers. uh, But I'd say the first one is that we're going to make a quick transition. You know, this is something that is obvious when you look at the history of the energy and power sectors. Um, here we are in, in 2023, uh, what is that, 141 years after Edison used coal on the Pearl Street plant in lower Manhattan. And today, coal still provides, what, 36 37% of global electricity. And for all the talk about coal being dead, the fact is that coal demand continues to rise. Um, so this is indicative of the, you know, what is called the Lindy effect, a new idea that I've just recently come to. Which, when you have these big systems, whichever whatever they are, whether it's a big installed base of of, of automobiles or or power plants, they are going to tend to stay in place for a long time, right? The inertia of the system. So, I would say that was the, is the biggest myth. This idea that we can do something. In short order. And I think that in particularly in the wake of COVID, with the, co- with the labor shortages, with supply chain disruptions, that's much more obvious now. We are not going to switch to something else. And of course, the issue being wind and solar, we are not going to make our shift our economy over to those two sources of intermittent energy anytime soon uh, at scale
0: yeah and what would you think is more realistic timeline and i know i'm not putting words in your mouth that you think never? that it's going to happen never, yeah it's
1: never fit <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like my friend my friend bob helder he loves to tell it it's his favorite cartoon it was in the new yorkers and there are two people standing there and they're looking at their calendars or whatever and one says the other how about never does never work for you <laughs> um and i i bring that up because it's funny right but you know the Jude Clemente makes a good point. He said, you know, we talk about electricity, we talk about wind and solar. Well, okay, they're fine. And they are growing. There's no doubt about it. I have solar panels on the roof of my house. There's no doubt that the solar market is growing. So is wind but those are producing electricity and we don't use electricity in transportation except to a very very limited degree. So this ignores the fact that the overwhelming majority of so what a 97% of our transportation depends on oil. So we you know this transition that we're talking about is only affecting a very small part of the overall energy consumption uh, you know that we that we that we need the overall energy and power that we need to to uh, run the economy.
0: Yeah, it's it's so mind blowing, of course, how sophisticated, how simplistically we've talked about this transition and yet how sophisticated it is, you know, from, uh, you know, and I know this is sort of sarcastic and that's probably not that powerful, but from a lot of people who don't know where their electricity comes from other than the wall, you know, are leading the way. And uh, some people are much more aggressive than I am about calling that out. But, uh, and again, my favorite example is they didn't understand that the wind doesn't blow every day or the sun doesn't shine. I mean, that's the level of sophistication we're talking about here. And I know for, I mean, there's so many places, you know, we can go with this, but let me just stay with materials for a second. I mean, we're not in the ballpark. Uh, if you want lithium-ion batteries, well, good luck on a lot of – and, again, that's a great example. We could be talking about how long they last. We could be talking about recycling. We could be talking about all of that stuff. But I'll just start with where you're getting your cobalt from, buddy, you know, where you're getting yeah. your lithium from. And one of the things that you've tracked, and you are, again, the pioneer in this, is we don't talk about the blowback from local communities, for example. We didn't talk about sure. that at all coming from China for rare earth minerals. But you, you've you done more work than anyone I'm aware of in the blowback from local communities. So maybe just focus on that for a sec, because they're not going to hear it anywhere else.
1: Sure. Well, and the a lot of the coverage, and there has been now, I will say, the Washington Post has done a couple of really good stories in the last month or so on yeah. this. and. Uh, I'm I'm saying they're good because both they quoted me um, and they cited (laughs) my work, the the Renewable Rejection Database, which I've been working on now since 2015. But the reality is that in Canada, I mean, look in Ontario, you have over 90 local communities who've declared themselves unwilling hosts to wind turbines. Uh, There's been resistance to wind all across Canada. Look at the more recent one. I think it was in Newfoundland uh, where local communities blocked the road to prevent the construction of a wind project there. Uh, look at what, you know, what is happening in Europe, massive opposition to these large scale wind and solar projects. So uh, I'll just follow up on the renewable rejection database. This is work I'm very proud of. And I'm, why did I do it? Because I'm just damn stubborn, right? I just decided, okay, well, as W. Edwards Deming said, in God, we trust all others bring data. Well, so I had to start collecting the numbers and the data and and citing each township, each county, each place where there have been a rejection or restriction. And now we're at close to 400 rejections or restrictions of wind energy, this is just in the U.S., and over 130 rejections or restrictions of solar. And no one on the other side, and by that I mean the the promoters of the weather-dependent renewables, have challenged me on any of it because they don't want to acknowledge, Mike, and this is the part that just my late brother John Bryce said grills my cheese they just assume that all those people who live out there in rural areas are just those bumpkins, you know, those hay seeds. They just don't know what's good for them, and we're going to force them. And that is, in, in fact, what is happening in many of these cases. They, these big companies, including NextEra and Invenergy and, and, and even MidAmerican Energy, a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, are trying to force local communities to accept big wind and solar projects they don't want. Imagine if this was Exxon Mobil or Ch- or Chevron. Yeah. What would the what would the media coverage be? I think it would be somewhat more than what it's been what we've been seeing, Mike.
0: Well, what's also never gets reported, and I think this one, I'm I, okay. Yes, you did mention the Washington Post a month ago. Come on, this is an issue. Yes, and I say better late than never, but that is late, you know, to this issue. Sure. And and uh, but I would say this: they also don't report that who's opposing, a lot of times it's the local people, but it's environmentalists who also oppose these projects. I think that just, you know, I'm trying to think of the name of uh, the eco-blank that's proud of the fact they got 180 lawyers involved trying to stop these projects. You know, and that's another aspect that, as I say, people are listening today, haven't heard that.
1: Well, but let me underscore that by pointing out what's happening on the U.S. East Coast where you have these big NGOs, and I don't call them environmental groups anymore. I don't think they're actually pro-environment. I think in many cases, they're just anti-environmentalists. I think what we're seeing is the death of environmentalism, and it's being Mm -hmm. replaced by climatism and renewable energy fetishism. And this is very clear when you see the... The, uh, the issues around the, uh, the North Atlantic right whale and the efforts to build massive amounts of wind energy uh, capacity on in the ocean on the East Coast. It is very clear. You look at the maps and the maps of where these projects are planned to be built are right on top of known habitat of the North Atlantic right whale and across the board from the Sierra Club and Natural Resources is crickets. They're no yeah. oh, or they're even saying, oh it's not wind turbines the whales are dying from something else. Well, well, wait a minute, imagine again, if this was the oil and gas industry trying to do what the wind industry is doing, it would be an up an uproar. There would be people getting arrested in the protests, and instead. Because the wind business is like, oh no, no, never, never, never mind, no, no problem. We're not really concerned about the whales. I mean, it, it's not their fault, you know. It, yeah, it's truly incredible. I mean, it really is, Mike. And and I I, I find it just disgusting on a whole lot of levels. I I, I do not. I, if it isn't clear, I don't like these groups.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. But
0: again, this is uh, symptomatic of the entire approach here, you know, that never was always politicized. It was looked at as an opportunity to gain power, looked at, you know, to raise money. There's a lot of other motives that were involved, as you just pointed out, besides climate change, besides or lowering emissions, I should put it. Now, I'm not even getting into that debate. I'm just saying, if you're trying to lower emissions, we're not going about it the right way. Just so you know, Robert, just as I'm up in Canada, of course, but uh the government has their own environmental commissioner who said we Canada for all the talk, because I think per capita Canada talks more a good game than anyone else. We might rival the Green Party in Germany. I mean that's where we're at.
1: Ooh, now that's oh, a bold I, statement. I know Go ahead.
0: I know I'm stepping out on a limb on that one. But <laughs> we are last in G seven in emissions reductions. But the most in yeah. the hot air talking about them, you know, so
1: <laughs> but but I'll, I'll tell you how I see, you know, Mike, I've followed, uh, you know, your fellow Canadian Chris Kiefer and his yes. work on nuclear in Canada. And I think, you know, I, where I see I'm, I'm pretty bullish on Canada in that regard. I, what what I see now I'm in Texas and I'm watching it from a distance. But I've had Chris Kiefer on my podcast yep. and talked to him many times. He's a friend of mine. And I'm really proud of the work that he's done, and how he has really reinvigorated the focus on uh, can-do reactors in Canada. You've got the best uranium deposits in the world. You have these incredible, incredibly designed, very uh, uh, durable uh, uh, reactors. And and he has helped catalyze the movement to not just refurbish them, to expand them. I mean, it's really been quite remarkable. So. You know, I and and, and here's my view on, on nuclear and climate. You don't have to be concerned about climate to be pro-nuclear. I mean, you know, I think the other attributes of nuclear are really critical here. And the weather resilience and the affordability, the long-term jobs, the infrastructure, those are things that – and and labor in particular is one of the reasons why Kiefer's had such, uh, su- such success is getting labor on his side, pointing out these are good, long-term, high-paid jobs. And so I think there's a uh, – Canada I, I really think is in many ways going – leading the world in terms of um, – blazing a path in terms of a new view on uh, sustainable and well, I hate that word. I don't like that uh, of, of durable energy and power networks.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree. We've had a chance to talk with Chris and I have a tremendous respect for the, the dedication oh, they've shown. And yes, they have had. I think that's the most positive thing I can say. You know, I mean, literally, yeah. when you look at when you look at people uh, in, in our government not acknowledging the challenges with supply chains the, the challenges with China dominating rare earth as just an example, refining, you know, yeah. all the things around that. I, I, thanks to Chris and his group and the people who've worked tirelessly there. They made progress in Ontario, you know, which is obviously significant. And British Columbia sure. is lucky because it's, it's hydroelectric. You know what I mean? So it's, oh, sure. you know, Quebec's yeah. been lucky on that regard, too. Uh, and you say uh, we've got the uranium deposits, and that brings me to another thing on the bigger issue, if you don't mind, because you've been writing sure. about it, which is, hey, you know, and we've been chronicling this. We were bullish on uranium. Remember Sprout? Uh, Sprout, I'm sorry. Yeah. Sprout went the whole uranium fun thing, and I and we were bullish on that. That same conference, by the way, in February of 2020, saying that's one of our you know long term picks is why uranium. You you know the the top quality uranium companies, BHP, you know, uh, chemical, that kind of stuff. And uh, so we've been measuring that progress and whether it's, uh, you know, Japan saying, wait a second, we don't care about Fukushima anymore. We're going to do more. South Korea saying, I think we can put 22 up tomorrow morning. Uh, You know, all of those things. There's clearly (laughs) been a movement towards uranium, but that doesn't guarantee the supply side. And that's something, again, you've brought to the public's attention.
1: Well, and this is something that I think is you know, I've I've been I've written six books, and yeah. and by the way, I, I, you didn't plug my Substack. I'm going to plug that. Oh, I will. Rob, Robert Robert Bryce dot dot com, uh, and I have a piece out uh, just published uh, talking about uranium supplies and the fact that the U.S. has really sleepwalked into this situation where. In the 1980s, we were the world's biggest exporter of nuclear fuel. Now we're the biggest importer. Yeah. And we've quit mining uranium for all effective purposes. Yeah. Now, our uranium ore is not as good as Canada's, not as good as Kazakhstan. But we still have reserves. And we could say the same about oil and gas in the United States. Our our reserves aren't as big as Saudi Arabia's, but still we're we're producing it. But the, the point here is that we have fallen asleep. The, and we, I'm using the papal we here, In the United States, we're a lot of effort, a lot of money, a lot of capital is going toward small modular reactors, the ideas of the nuclear renaissance. But uh, in all the midst of this, there's been an ignorance and a blithe kind of, you know, uh, just uh, assumptions that we're going to have enough fuel and hold on just a damn minute. No, uh, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, those fuel supplies are really problematic. And remember that the U.S. is going to be competing now with European countries and China for a fuel out of Kazakhstan for enrichment you know that this is a global game now and we've lost this focus on our energy security when it comes to this critical energy commodity, which is uranium and enriched uranium, a halo, low enriched uranium. Mm-hmm. We've lost focus on that. And we better get sober right damn quick.
0: Yeah, uh, but typical of every aspect of this, uh, you know, sort of the energy debate. You know, I mean, you mentioned coal a, a bit ago and it's related to sure. <laughs> nuclear. I mean, is there a bigger farce than Germany having spent something upwards of $500 billion to do renewables? And of course, they shut down their you know the last year, uh, nuclear plant in April. The last couple go down. Right. And who's the biggest importer of coal now? You know, in Europe, who's the one who's using the most for their grid? I mean, y- you can't make this well, stuff and, up. And
1: remember, remember the great the height of it, Mike, was when it was. Late last year I published a piece I think it was in Forbes. Mm-hmm. I'm only writing on Substack now but you can find it on Forbes. They took down a wind project in Germany to make way for yes. the expansion yeah. of a lignite mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, if you wrote that, if you wrote that no one would believe it, yeah. right? You know, it's like, "Oh, come on. That doesn't happen." No, in fact, it did. It did happen yeah. and it's indicative of What I call the iron law of electricity, which is people, businesses and countries will do whatever they have to do to get the electricity they need. And this is what we see in Germany. And since we're on the topic of Germany, I'll just quickly add, I, I do short videos. I call them about a minute and I put them on TikTok and Twitter and the rest of it. And I did one the other day. Germany is in recession now. Yeah, you know there this the staggering increases in energy prices. This is foolishness of trying to you know pin their economy to renewables, closing their nuclear plants, and the 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 heads of two different companies, RWE and Evonik Industries, both were quoted in the Daily Mail just the other day saying, "We're starting deindustrialization." This is ru- ba- energy policy disaster, was the phrase yeah. used by the head of Evonik, which is a, a very big chemical company. So. You know, the, the, Germany is showing the world what not to do. And they're doing it with the typical kind of German pride, I guess. I don't know. but There's no explaining it. I don't get it, Mike.
0: But the inexplicable part, or I guess it is explainable if you're an ideologue. But what lessons have they learned in Europe? I mean, I look at some of the notes coming out of the EU, uh, you know, in the parliament and stuff. You have people who are opposed to it. But the, still the thrust is, uh, by the way, I've learned nothing. You know, it's, I yeah. find it absolutely incredible that the harsh reality of things like the deindustrialization estimates of 20% of the German industrial base manufacturing base has been lost now transferred right, to other more right. reliable uh, jurisdictions. Yeah. What would get your attention? What, you know, what great Britain having a 1200% increase in electrical costs, uh, September of two you know, electrical bill, like, wouldn't that get your attention? It's unbelievable to me how nothing's been learned.
1: Well, let's talk about Britain then too. So I forgot the name of the woman who was the prime minister for about six weeks before Rishi Sunak took over, right?
0: Yeah, I think her name was Liz Trust. And she was the one who was going to do, uh, like said, we were going to go back to shale. And then they turned that over. That would have been a good thing. But yeah, it's it's unreal what's going on.
1: Well, it, it is, and isn't it incredible? And she was a Tory, and she's replaced by the Tory Rishi Sunak, who one of the first things he does when he gets back into office is say, "Oh yeah, we're going to ban fracking." No, we're not going to repeal the ban on fracking. We're going to keep that in place. I mean, it's just truly incredible, Mike. And you know, there's an there's a historical element to this that I think it's important to understand. So. Remember, the, the discovery of the North Sea oil field changed Britain's yeah. form, you know, their their fortunes, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, just turned them into an energy powerhouse. But then they quit drilling and some of the North Sea, you know, reserves were declining. But Britain has amazing quantities of shale. The amount of gas in place in, in the shales in Britain are just enormous. Well, there's a historical precedent, as I mentioned, and during World War II. Uh, there's a book that was published called The Secret of Sherwood Forest. There were drillers that went from Oklahoma to the, to Britain and drilled something like 100 wells in a span of about 18 months, of memory serves. Dramatically increased oil production in Britain, did it all in secret, and that oil then was used in the war effort to help provide high high-octane gasoline for British airplanes. So... If there is a crisis and Britain is clearly in a crisis, why in the name of Peter, Paul and Mary, would they not start drilling again? But again, I think this to me, it's indicative and it'll jump ahead. What is this indicative of? I think it is indicative of this this uh, this intransigence of the anti hydrocarbon lobby and their many allies in in the NGO world and in politics, and they don't want any kind of hydrocarbons to be developed and they hate nuclear. And they're, you know, they have this fantastical notion around renewables and they, they are incredibly powerful in in, in, in political circles. And, and
0: you think of the consequences of that approach. They had a mild winter, which was a it was a godsend, you know, to them. But they're not always going to have mild winters. They've done nothing to really change the dynamic of their energy regime. Uh, we find the denial, and I, and we did mention, you know, uh, Ontario Nuclear, that was a positive, California saying hey, the Diablo Canyon can keep going a little bit longer. But... Uh, to me, yeah, this yeah. reluctance to acknowledge just the facts that have happened, the consequences that have happened in terms of industrial uh, output, industrial you know base, you know jobs, individuals really suffering at the lower end of the income scale, uh, bodes very ill that we're going to revisit these and worse. And and sorry, one aspect that does gets overlooked in the West is that's already had devastating consequences in developing nations. Sure, Germany could afford to go out and buy natural gas, bid up the price and pay for it. Well, that took it out of the hands of Sri right. Lanka. Uh, you know, I mean, no wonder India is being yeah. so belligerent or not cooperative to the West, you know, when it comes to energy policy. The list is a long one. And I think the failure to acknowledge what they've already done in Africa in the negative, you know, with estimates of 675 million people without electricity, uh, I, I can go on and on in this because I find it so outrageous.
1: Well, well, let me give you a, a specific here, Mike, because this one, I think, is indicative of what, you know, power politics when it comes to global mm-hmm. energy. Right. So what did Germany do after Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, you, Nord Stream got blown up and, you know, it's we're still, you know, a lot of debate about who did it. I see more Hirsch's article has very strong belief. You know, it was very strong indications it was the U.S. Now, is that provable? No. But um, I digress. But what did Germany do? They went around the world, started buying up LNG cargoes, every one that they could. And what did they do? They outbid Pakistan in particular. And so in the last few months, the Pakistanis have said, "Okay, we're out of the LNG market. We quit. We can't buy. We can't compete with the rich Germans. We're going to build coal plants. And that is, in fact, what they are doing. And so, again, it goes back to the iron law of electricity. You know, politicians get booted out of office if the lights go out. You know, this was I saw it here in Texas, right? You know, the governor after the blackouts here two years ago. Oh, don't blame me. You know, it's those those guys. Well, they're his, you know largely his appointees, but never never mind. But what is Pakistan doing? They're tending to their own needs. What is India doing? What is China doing? They're all building coal fired power plants because they know they have to have electricity, and they're going to do what they need to do for their economy. That is the you know climate change takes this back seat always everywhere, and this is Roger Pilkey Jr.'s point, the iron law of climate change, that uh, it, it, when faced between economic growth and action on climate, countries will always always choose economic growth, and that's what we're seeing.
0: And that's that's the irony. I think Monty Python sits back and says they're angry that they've borrowed one of their scripts, you know, because <laughs> because it's really, I mean, the number of things I've, I've written or posted, and I, I start with, you can't make this up, you know, as we alluded yep. to earlier, because I, I'm just at, at, at a loss at the ideological-driven climate change agenda without any practicality, and now we're seeing these consequences. And then consequences, by the way, let me ask you a question. Sorry, this is just sure. like if we were having a beer, I'd ask you this question. Yeah, When do the people away. who have pushed that agenda have to take responsibility for it? Like one of the big issues on Money Talks, and this is going back early, was, wait a second, you stop natural gas, you're impacting ammonia and urea and fertilizer prices. I right. mean, one of the best suggestions I had, and I think it was 220, I said, buy ammonia you know, in the future is because it you know, went up 600%, but it was under right. that understanding. Well, you're gonna starve people. You, know, you have to own your consequences. And there are consequences right. besides my electricity bill went up or even that the uh, you know, industrial base is being eroded. No, we were right. literally starving people and they just take no responsibility. And if you, in my opinion, if you vote for these people again, well, you got to own that consequence.
1: Yeah, and I'll take that point. But I also think things are starting to shift, Mike. I think, what, mm-hmm. you know, especially in Europe, I think now, German, let's leave Germany out of the conversation <laughs> for a moment. But what we, I just wrote in my piece on Substack, robertbrice.substack.com, um, the headline is No U, uh, the letter U, <laughs> No Uranium. Um, pointing out that in Europe now there's a new nuclear alliance and that they there are 16 countries in this alliance who are saying we're going to develop our own nuclear supply chain. Right. We're going to do it without the Russians. OK, well, that's great. Right. But I think it's indicative of, of energy realism. It's indicative of this. There's there is some re- so, sobriety that is approaching here now. Is it the same in Canada and the U.S.? Well, maybe. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about Trudeau. He, you know, he, I, I think he's always holding his finger up and see which way the wind is blowing. But I think there is still in the United States. You know, we're seeing different, uh, big regional differences. I, you don't see this kind of sobriety in California. Let me be clear. I mean, this, this is a state that is alike that Germany's. This is the Germany of the United States when it comes to energy policy. And I'll just make one more quick point, which is that. I've written a lot about California and my daughter lives in Los Angeles. So I, 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 I have to be, you know, very um, understanding of what, you know, of, of the state in general, but their their energy policies are just ruinously regressive and their, their their electricity prices are now, about, have risen faster than any other state in the United States since 2008. And it's all because of this renewable craziness and yet they double down on it. So I, you know, I I see some signs for hope, Mike. That's what I'm trying to focus on. And be be, yeah. be optimistic, but I'm also very aware and very sober about well, what are where are we headed, and how what do we need to do in terms of policy that makes sense?
0: Well, I'm in that camp that wants a wake up call you know, and I yeah. say the evidence is in front of you. And I'm saying this from, hey, if climate change is your agenda, and that's fine, I have no debate, we can all have what our priorities are from government. I'm saying the very people who tell you they care about climate change and politics are undermining, as your example about the coal production going on in several other nations, right. uh, you know, because of that climate agenda. Uh, I'm just still flabbergasted. and I just say, Make whatever choice you want, but know the facts. Wake up a little bit to the consequences, uh, you know, within this. But I want to come back before I let you go to the uranium sure. story. And the reason is, uh, again, I'm not trying to, I can't give individual investment advice because I don't know everybody's circumstances. Right. But what I think you can make a strong case for is having a core position of uranium that you might say I'm keeping five to seven years mm. because I don't see anything but demand going up, and they can't meet the supply – uh, requirements to meet that new demand. Just I'm just standing back saying that's what it looks like to me.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll add. I, you know, I don't own any uranium stocks myself. I'm I'm just more of an index fund guy because I've you know I'm not smart enough to try and outsmart the market. But I do see, and I've had on my podcast on the Power Hungry Podcast Adam yeah. Rosen Swag talking about the bull case for natural resources in general. Um, and I think there is a strong case for the you know base metals, copper, nickel uh, you know, the, the, the metals that are going to be critical to, um, any, any, you know, this build out of renew- of renewables and so on. But I think also it's, it's important to remember, and I've had another guest on my podcast, Simon Misho talking about mining in general. And, you know, so far this year, I think copper has been pretty flat, right? Which is, yes. you know, odd. It should be in theory should be going up, but you also, so Simon Misho was his name talking about the fact that globally, these ore bodies, the quality of the ores that we're mining now in general across base metals are lower quality than the ones we were mining 10 yes. or 20 years ago well that means more energy intensity it means that they're going to be harder to mine harder to produce and in theory more you know somebody's going to make some money on this so um but i'll also add you know the oil and gas market there's been con- continuing underinvestment in oil and this is an irreplaceable fuel i was, uh, you know, I, I like to say, well, if oil didn't exist, we would have to invent it. It is a damn near miracle substance. And the idea that we're going to do without it is just not based on anything close to reality, given the massive base of, of internal combustion engine vehicles that are on the road. Of, what is a billion and a half globally?
0: And, and back to our, the very first question I asked about myths, and that's yeah. got to be one of the big myths is somehow we're not going to be using you know, oil, natural gas, coal we're going to use energy that's the premise and if someone says we're not then you know try it yourself you know what i mean i say you first
1: Hi- hydro I, <laughs> my punchline, is, mike is hydrocarbons are here to stay are, yeah. are are wind and solar growing yes but largely they're only adding to our energy supply yes. they're not displacing significant quantities of hydrocarbons on the global scale, yes, on, in the electric sector in the U.S., you can make that argument and I'll, okay, I'll buy that. But last year alone in the U.S., I have these numbers I've been presenting on it, just the growth in natural gas last year and gas consumption in the U.S. went up 5%, which is a huge jump in one year. The 5% increase in natural gas was about a one and a half exajoules, I think, that just the increase in natural gas was greater than the increase in wind and solar combined. So this idea that hydrocarbons are suddenly going away. No, let's look at the numbers. The numbers do not indicate that there is yes. an energy transition and energy transition underway.
0: So much to talk about. And I want to invite people to go to the power hungry podcast, but you know what, Robert, you also do a Substack. I'm just kidding.
1: I do. <laughs> Robert, Robert- <Rice.substack.com. laughs> Yeah. Um, and no. I quite like it. And I did the, the piece on uranium and did some graphics there that I thought were, yeah. were really interesting. And, uh, you know, and I think Canada, uh, you know, I, I just, as I said, you know, the Canada has a is one of the going to be one of the partners for the U.S. when it comes to uranium supplies is going to be Canada and Australia because I'm not sure we can rely on on Kazakhstan. And yeah. now we know we can't rely on the Russians. And in fact, the Chinese and the Russians are buying for control or buying for supplies of, of uranium from Kazakhstan. So, you know, th- it's a very dynamic world. And suddenly these supply chains that we thought were secure, not so much. And it is a huge
0: opportunity with our can-do reactors, you know, and and as you say, Chris Kiefer's made some real progress on that. Canada does not have a great track record of taking full advantages of its energy opportunities. You know, we haven't seen that because that's not been the priority. And I think the the Trudeau government actually is more disposed toward nuclear than they've been in the past, but they don't like to talk about it. Why? Because they don't want to offend, uh, you know, they've got the most extreme environment minister Literally, I think in the Western world, Stephen Guillot, you know, who uh, I could tell you chapter and verse about him. He's uh, let's say he's committed uh, and maybe should be Uh, (laughs) (laughs) just kidding. Can't can't resist. Can't resist. But, you know, but again, the opportunities there, you know, God knows the work that you do helps present its fact-based. That's why I say I've been uh, really enjoying your work on uh, Power Hungry, really enjoying, you know, Substack, but other things you do and your books. So, uh, again, I'm going to put you on the spot and say, we got to visit again in the near future because this is terrific.
1: No, I'd love to do it, Mike. Uh, you know, I'm passionate about these issues. Yeah. I, uh, I feel, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky in my career, right? I've, I've been a reporter my whole life, never had a real job. Um, And I feel incredibly fortunate to be writing about these issues and finding an audience, frankly. And 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 I work hard. Let me be clear. But I, 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 my life has purpose, and this is my purpose: to try and bring some sanity and clarity and and um, facts and research, facts and research to, to to these issues because the energy and power sectors are our most important industries. Every other industry depends on them. And yet there's been a very kind of a cavalier approach to them and, in how we think about them and talk about them. And, my response is no, 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 yeah. no, 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 <laughs> We have to be very, very careful in how we think about them. And, and i you know I I think we're you you want to close here, but I'll just end with this. We no. have to remember that for a lot of this discussion, this is this is a quasi-religious belief for a lot of people. And yeah. so disabusing them of some of these belief systems is going to be very hard. But I, I think it has to be seen in, in those kinds of terms that there is a, re, a very the, the, the overlap between a lot of the climatism and Christianity. Some of the terms, the ideas of sin and redemption, very similar. So this is not an easy fight. It's not going to be over anytime soon. Uh, and I just, you know, pack a lunch because these, these issues are going to be around for a long time.
0: Well, my worry is that the consequences become so dire, and we've seen them in other parts of the world, as I alluded to, that, uh, you know, you're forced to wake up, you know, I, I love that line in the, in the war between physics and virtue signaling, physics is undefeated.
1: Right. And
0: uh, yeah. that's, that's where we're at. Robert, thanks so much for a great time.
1: It's a great pleasure, Mike. Thanks. Have uh, be happy to come back anytime.
0: Time now for the quote of the week. You know, so many questions remain unanswered when it comes to Chinese interference in Canadian elections. And, and by the way, that overlooks so many other areas of society, for example, that we've had warnings about from CSIS for over 10 years, uh, whether we're talking about threats against people in Canada who've got family back. And of course, that's related also to the Chinese interference in our elections. But it looks like the federal government's determined not to call a public inquiry where witnesses would be forced to testify under oath And if they refused uh, to appear, by the way, they'd be subject to sanctions. I mean, you can decide why the government stonewalling the majority of Parliament and the majority of Canadians and refusing to call a public inquiry and instead suffer the consequences of appointing a family friend with significant ties to the Trudeau Foundation, along with business dealings with members of the Communist Party in China, when... Come on, literally, there's hundreds of other qualified individuals who wouldn't have any of that connection to the Trudeau family or China. Well, they could have been appointed as the special rapporteur. Now, politics are obviously playing a significant role. And that brings me to my quote of the week by Eric Montigny. He's a professor of political science, Laval University. He's also a visiting researcher at Séance pour Bordeaux. In quotes, Chinese interference, foreign government interference in Canadian elections, is not a controversy like any other. It touches the very foundations of Canadian democracy. This controversy will not go away on its own. This is not a partisan affair, but an attack on the integrity of our electoral system, to use the words of former Elections Canada director Jean-Pierre Kingsley. On the contrary, it should be of concern to all parties, like all dictatorships, China strives to undermine the principles of democratic regime. I think that's a great summation of what we're talking about here. I agree. The whole issue of Chinese interference in Canada in our election should be above politics. But good luck with that. It would have been as simple as calling a public inquiry. Bang. All of the controversy and the frou frou in the last few weeks would be over. We'd wait for the findings. We'd hear the testimony. But Canada's well-being consistently has taken a backseat to political considerations in this case. Yeah, in a lot of cases, but this is just the latest big-time example. I think one of the takeaways from what's been happening over the last year, I mean, first, there was a a major consensus that the economy is going to slow down dramatically, lead to a recession. Now, that I'm not saying the recession won't happen. I'm just saying the time frame continues to move, like into the late fourth quarter, now into early uh, 224, that kind of stuff. I, I just want to say what your takeaway should be is how many variables are involved when you look at an economy. And this is why it's such a farce. When a government suggests for one moment, or the media supports that kind of uh, nonsense, hey, who's going to manage the economy? Are you kidding me? There's billions of moving parts for the Canadian economy. You say, well, wait. We've only got thirty-eight million people. Yeah, it's all the demand we get uh, internationally. It's uh, commodity prices controlled in or you know dominated internationally. All of this stuff. That's my big point. I want you to take away here is this is a complicated subject. I want to bring Mike Levy in on that note. Mike, uh, we got the quarter-point bump in interest rates, and I think it's safe to say that surprised the majority of analysts. Not that you know we sort of have come from hey, when are we going to cut rates to they're going to take a pause. And then you noticed, you know, in the last couple of weeks, is we're going to get an increase. I still think the increase coming this early surprised an awful lot of people.
3: So the Bank of Canada raised rates and, uh, and yeah. it was sort of a surprise. But anecdotally, I mean, this is happening because of inflation. There is no doubt about it. They have not got anything in the way of inflation under control of course they've uh seen the rate of inflation come down but it's still inflation mike i walked into the supermarket two days ago to do a quick grocery shop stopped in the fruit department grapes grapes green grapes red grapes twelve dollars and 95 cents a pound $12.95 at like $12.95 a pound. Like what are we talking about here, Mike? And you know, you you just take a look at what prices actually are, but that's what the Bank of Canada is dealing with right now.
0: Yeah, and I, I, there are, obviously as food inflation isn't back under control. I mean, I and I think again, it's a complicated uh, economy, so you get some sectors that have slowed down, but even the ones that were interest rate sensitive, like real estate, as Ozzy's been reporting, you know, he felt the low was in February. He said that before February, but you've got the revitalization of real estate that was supposed to be the big areas hit. And yes, I appreciate that the rate of growth when you compare it to last year, you know, gasoline prices, even though they're oh boy, boy, people out in Vancouver looking over two dollars, you know, a liter again. No. I know people in some parts of Alberta are, are, are laughing at that. But the rate of change, yeah, it's come down. You look at the last six months, it's it's way more under control. But what we're paying, and that's a key distinction, all I know is what I pay still is way up there.
3: Absolutely. So let's take a look at the Bank of Canada. Um, the, the interest rate uh, went to 4.75%. The bank rate is the highest since 2001. And it's pushing up Canadian mortgage rates, further squeezing household budget. And this is the highest level the Bank of Canada has had rates since 2001, 2002. And the bank's thoughts that the previous hike rates or rate hikes had borrowing costs high enough to cool the economy and bring down inflation over time, not happening. It's not coming down enough. And um, the bank, uh, Mike, the, the market is now, today, uh, just a couple of days after when the Bank of Canada announced possibility of a further quarter percent in July, and if not by July, then by September. So the trajectory has changed, and it's changed meaningfully.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I still look at that uh, prime rate at 6.95%. And and I follow this stuff daily, and I still shake my head at that. Uh, You know, and, and that's the challenge it's going to be. I mean, again, the inflation number is a basket of 700 goods, you know, and services that they measure. And then individuals go out, and as you say, they shop for grapes and go, what the heck? You know, or they might do something. We called in a plumber this week and, you know, God bless them, and and it it worked, but you know what I mean, you know, services are going up, uh, all of that kind of stuff, so it's, and again, I think the Bank of Canada themselves says we're bumping the rates up, because we still haven't got the underlying pressures, uh, you know, under control with the decrease that they've seen, a lot of it coming from comparative gas prices and other energy compared to a full year ago, so yeah, we're not paying out in Vancouver, you're not paying 244, you know, you're back to paying two as if that's good news. But you know what my point being is you're comparing. So, hey, so the energy cost, the component of, of inflation goes down. So yeah, they, they obviously are still worried. And I think your point is the big one that people want to take away is, hey, we may not be talking one rate hike as we just got this week. We may be talking another and then another.
3: And, and Mike, I think there's two words here, keywords. And I think we should maybe talk about these for a minute. There's excess demand out there. Wherever you look, there are more people with more money to spend. Wages are up. People have their savings accounts, money in the bank. Uh, The unemployment, and I think that's one of the keys, is unemployment or employment has to turn around. That's a real key. But we have people flush with money, wanting to spend, and we have people working there is not any lag if somebody wants a job they can go out and get it they can earn reasonable money and they're out there spending and until that scenario turns then we are not going to see a turn in the rate of inflation coming down enough for the bank of canada federal reserve central banks to take a step back
0: yeah and i mean you look at the likelihood of Raising again in July, 60%, raising by September. You know, if they don't do July, 85%, Mike. So, again, I think that's the big shift. If we'd gone back six months, uh, a lot of bright people would say, no, we're going to have a pause and we're going to have a decline by September. That's off the table right now. It's how many more increases? One, two, maybe three, who knows? And again, I'll come back to the first point I made. This is a complicated subject. Com, you know, the uh, economy has so many moving parts within this. And uh, so the Bank of Canada, I understand why they say we've got to see the data.
3: And, and, Mike, I believe now that this inflation scenario is hitting every part of the consumer. I'm talking from those who are on a very limited budget to go out and buy with the, the necessities of life to people who are mid and mid high income. You, you go into a restaurant. You just can't, wherever it is, it's costing you more and it's impacting. And even if you're at a level of medium high to high income, you're still going to notice and see and, and be impacted by higher prices, whether it's the great restaurant you went to, the very high priced restaurant, their prices are even higher, or whether it's going into the grocery store and trying to make your budget last so you can feed your family.
0: Well, I'll leave, I'm going to have to get, rely on you for the high-priced restaurants because, of course, you know I don't go. Yeah. I'll go the upper, <laughs> I'll go the upper end of McDonald's. But your point's also very well taken. It's coming up the income scale and being a terrible hardship for people on fixed income. Terrible hardship for people on the lower income level. And again, we'll have to wait till it develops. We're going to be able to do this all all year, I think, to be continued, Mike. Thanks for your time. I hope you have a terrific week.
3: You too. Thank you, Mike.
0: Talking real estate today on Money Talks, because it's, I, I still think, and I've said this earlier, and I appreciate that, say it with Ozzy all the time, that I just think the biggest real estate crunch in our lifetime is hitting us here, and there's going to be affordability, lack of rental units, that kind of thing. So I want to get a little more practical uh, today, and that's why I've brought on uh, Ralph Waal. Uh, he's the Chief Compliance Officer with Easy Invest. Ralph, first of all, appreciate you taking time with us.
4: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk about your company for a second. This is the practical side. Uh, and I want to say that I've watched your company, Easy Invest, make a shift in recognizing this opportunity for investors, obviously. I mean, bad news if you say on, on the societal level, we can't get affordable housing, we're going to have a rental squeeze, but that actually creates an opportunity on the business side.
4: Yeah, I've been in this business for about 20 years, Mike, starting off with some rental condos way back, and then it went to land syndications, so all kinds of projects. We even financed the first IHOP restaurants in Alberta back then. We did the beach house at Saratoga, which is recreational property out on Vancouver Island, and we set record prices there, but it was a one-off project. We've come to the realization that we need to build bread-and-butter homes because there's such a crisis in housing out there. I call it a train wreck when I talk to investors about it.
0: Well, as we've been alluding to, and I know, as I say, this is where you put your money where your mouth is, if you know what I mean, with this kind of investment shift. Uh, but again, we just look at the amount of people coming in uh, to British Columbia, uh, you know, huge amount, of course, overall in the Canadian setting, over 1,050,000, you know, last year. And I know it's simplistic, but I keep saying, where are they going to live? And we know that the targets for uh, new newcomers coming into the country are huge, you know, half a million this year, this year, half a million next, and they'll probably exceed that because you have people here on, say, student visas who decide to stay. So, I mean, this supply problem just seems incredible.
4: I think most people don't realize how serious this problem is unless you are in the market to look for a rental and you show up at that open house and you find there's a 100 people trying to get that unit beside you. Or if you do a bid on a real estate deal, whether it's a townhouse or a condo, almost anywhere in the lower mainland, despite of interest rates rising, things are selling very, very quickly.
0: Uh, where are you guys focusing? I mean, what is there sort of some list of things you say, this is what we're looking for? As you mentioned, you did the Saratoga Beach uh, House project, which is a, a wonderful project. Uh, but at the time, you thought it was one off. But now, here you go. Uh, and I, again, I'm just sort of looking as investors, where are people putting their money? And so where are you guys focusing?
4: We're focusing on bread-and-butter apartments for the next while, and by while I mean the next decade or so, because even if we would get a government that would say, look, let's stop immigration for a couple of years until we get our house in order, which I don't think they will, because Canada's economy is so dependent on consumers. But even if we would stop immigration altogether, we're looking at a backlog, in my opinion, of about a decade before we catch up to where we should restore some semblance of affordability.
0: Uh, Are there sort of criteria you have? I mean, I I know that Aussie Talks uh, have been talking for years about, you know, transit is another problem. How do you get places? Anybody who's been in the traffic is nodding their head at this point. But, you know, how do you get places, that kind of thing? Do you have sort of a set of criteria, ideal criteria that you'd want to sort of adhere to?
4: You know, we're an investment company first. We have got a mutual fund trust. So first of all, the numbers have to make sense. Our investors have to make a good return. If the numbers don't work on the project, we simply walk away from it. But there are many projects we look at on an almost weekly basis. It has to be close to transit. And once the numbers are worked out and construction is built in, it has to work out that it's reasonably affordable. Now, affordable in this area, of course, uh, is all relative. But there is such a massive amount of demand that no matter what you build, as long as it isn't super luxurious, for example, a yeah. couple of years ago, the trend was to build homes for, for example, Asian investors. I think that market has really slowed down. But just bread and butter apartments where families can live, I think the demand is, is very, very strong for that.
0: Does transit play a big role, in, in again, in an ideal world in selection? Transit is huge.
4: I mean, I live in Richmond. Uh, I try to get to Vancouver sometimes on my motorbike on a Saturday afternoon. I have given up several times. You can't get out. So I think transit over the next five to ten years will play a critical role.
0: What what about things like, um, you know, if I'm in a city or in a, a town area, uh, about walking to amenities, I, I may, maybe I could put that more eloquently, but you know what I mean. I want to go to the grocery store, for goodness sakes. Uh, is a big advantage if I could walk there or, as you say, take not, not big-time transportation?
4: I think that's a massive uh, thing to build in. It's got to be walkable or at least you know, take your bicycle there, which which is very hard to find. I grew yeah. up in the Netherlands. We never did our shopping with cars when I was a kid. My mom used to get on her bicycle and get groceries. So I think that's very critical as well, close to transit, close to amenities.
0: I was just, by the way, in Amsterdam and I I've never seen bicycles used as a weapon so often. <laughs> exactly. If you haven't been there, I mean, talk about a bicycle culture, at least in Amsterdam and of course throughout the Netherlands, but oh my goodness gracious. Even pedestrians had, were taking their life in their own hands. <laughs> so like the heck with the cars, the bikes are going to get me. But yeah, your point's very well taken. I mean, the convenience of that and a whole bunch of other issues. So uh, again, the other thing that sort of has cropped up, and we've seen some uh, major uh, developments sort of canceled because of the higher interest rates and maybe some other challenges in certain areas uh, that don't have that kind of transit component. What about the higher interest rate environment for you guys?
4: You've got to build it into the numbers. Now, everybody's talking about high interest rates, but don't forget, historically over the last 50 years, mortgage rates have sat at about 7.7% on average, so even when mortgages are sitting at 4 to 5%, that's still not high in an historic view. Yeah, I, I,
0: that's a point that I, I think bears repeating, that besides the uh, huge number of new people coming looking for rental or looking for uh, you know something they could buy as a home, but it, it is interesting that, um, that people don't appreciate, and again, we've been spoiled by four years of low interest rates or three years of low interest rates, but my gosh, I still remember, and old guys always say this, by the way, Ralph, I remember 13 percent. I remember 10 percent. I remember getting a 7 percent mortgage and thinking, oh, my God, that's free. You know, and then we worked our way down because it was a major sort of deflationary uh, interest rate environment. But I think your point's very well taken. I mean, there was a heck of a lot of years, like 50 years worth of people going, what? I can get something at five and a half. I'll take it.
4: I think some developers maybe leverage their projects, which means Mm -hmm. they put mortgages on the actual land, on the equity. We don't do that. In our mutual fund trust, we buy the land outright. So if you get another major economic event, such as 2008 or the start of COVID, uh, you might run into trouble if you're over leveraged. In our situation, we would just wait until things stabilize. We don't leverage our land.
0: Ralph, I'm wondering what the time frame is when people invest in a project like Easy Invest, uh, you know, that kind of thing. You had mentioned that you guys have a 10-year horizon right now of saying, you know, this is an ever-increasing population, ever-increasing demand, you know, in certain areas of the country. You're looking at, for example, the greater Vancouver area. Uh, Of course, anybody across the country can invest there. but, But so what time frame do you recommend when people do take on an investment like this?
4: I think when you invest in real estate, whether you own property or whether you invest in someone else's project, you should give yourself a couple of years, two to three to four years is realistic. In real estate, it just takes time to develop these projects. Furthermore, we buy projects where a lot of the work has already been done. Usually a development permit is already in place or a building permit has been applied for, and that's when we jump in.
0: Yeah, we're going to actually talk to Ozzy later on about exactly that, the problems if you have to wait for a development permit. That's another cost issue. That doesn't make the headlines, if you know what I mean. You know well what I'm talking about. And the other is, as you've just alluded to, you guys secure land. Uh, C.D. Howe just did a a study that I'll talk with Ozzy about that talks about how difficult that's been. And that raises price other places, you know, or, or in other areas because you literally can't get the land. So that's interesting that you guys start with that. Let me get the land, let me own the land, and then we can proceed.
4: Yes, that's how we do things. And in the past, we've taken raw land through the rezoning process, the development permit and building permit process. And unfortunately, in Canada, that process seems to get more lengthy and more costly. So what we've done now is we've pivoted to find pieces of land where almost all of that work is done prior to us moving in.
0: Yeah, as I say, it's it's an incredible story right now, and I, th- I as I said, I think it's just going to be huge. We're going to spend a lot of time on this on Money Talks just to make people aware of it. But Ralph, I appreciate you finding time for us. I know you guys are busy. That's a good thing, as I say. Ralph Vanderwall is the chief compliance officer, uh, dealer representative for Easy Invest. Ralph, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. Hey, one thing I got to give a big thank you to Easy Invest and Ralph, who've uh, again supported Special Olympics. They've got a great uh, silent auction item and of course that we're launching uh, but it's great saratoga park i mean this looks absolutely fantastic <laughs> and uh, i just got to thank the people at easy invest for the support of special olympics in that way time now for this week's shocking stat and for it i'm going to go to the world of sports maybe i better put it as big money sports I mean, there's a lot of shocking stats when it comes to the value of professional sports teams. Uh, Ford Measures, for example, that the average franchise in North America is risen about 78% or something. That's the NFL. And where that dominates in both total value and percentage of teams inside the top 50 valuations in the world. Dallas Cowboys, by the way, lead the way valuation $8 billion. On average, the salary of Major League Baseball players is just under 5 million US. That's about 90,000 a week. I mean, who wasn't blown away, for example, by the Yankees signing Aaron Judge to a nine year deal, 360 million. Uh, Make that 468 million in Canadian dollars, by the way. But Mike Trout's deal, 12 years, 426 million US dollars. But of course, he's got to get by on about 38 million per year. That's not NBA standards for people like Steph Curry. He's 48 million US a year. Russell Westbrook 47 million. LeBron 44 million US. But all of it pales in comparison to the news this week that Lionel Messi had turned down 3 years, 1.6 billion US dollars to play in Saudi Arabia. Now, keep in mind, that is the value of the Montreal Canadiens entire franchise. Or how about this? Stanley Cup finals right now, Florida and Las Vegas. That's the combined franchise value of those teams, and he was offered it over three years. Of course, he turned down that offer, but he accepted Inter-Miami's offer, which some suggest may end up working out more in terms of money than the Saudi money. Details of the entire deal cover only two and a half years, estimated that he's gonna make between 125 million US and 150 million. But he's also working on terms with Apple, which owns MLS streaming rights, and Adidas, which has partnership with the MLS, and Messi. So those numbers could be much higher. But come on, 125, 150 million for two and a half years? Well, I don't know about you, I found that absolutely shocking. You know, one of the things, if I'm going to put any message across to everybody listening, is the lack of affordability starts with government. And there's so many areas. I mean, uh, you know, oh, I'm really worried about your affordability. By the way, in British Columbia, pay a property purchase tax. Now, that's not consistent across the country. But the role that municipal, provincial, and federal governments play in pushing up the cost of housing, it just has to be more widely recognized. And I'd start with the media on that one. Do not let politicians stand up and say they're deep concerned about affordability and turn around and do things that absolutely push the price up. And that's what I want to talk to Ozzy Jurek about today. You can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, you alluded to this last week, and I wanted you to go further with it. And that's the C.D. Howe report that said, literally, I guess, the shortage of land that governments make available also has a huge impact on supply, which in turn impacts prices.
2: Yeah, no question. First of all, I mean, C.D. Howe is one of our major think tanks. You know, it's not just anybody making these statements. And they did a survey to find out that excessive regulatory burden make prices much higher than the actual cost of producing the new building. right? So, the, wow. so, the, so they did a, a large, large study and came up the gap between marginal cost of construction and the market price is widening. And it's all a matter of, upfront development charges, a lack of land for development for regulatory reasons, a lack of available transportation options, you know. Mike, that's why we have for years, we have talked here on the show that you should buy a TOD, a transit-oriented development, because, mm-hmm. you know, we need more of those closer to transportation. And then a lot of factors that, that restrict competition among developers and builders.
0: Uh, you know, and the list is a long one, and that's, as you say, C.D. Howe has been doing and following this some excellent work, but the public isn't aware of this, that things like upfront development charges, uh, you know, and and again, I just keep coming back to those scenes on TV where they can find some people who wanted to buy or are very upset about the lack of affordable housing and some politicians saying, yes, we care. And it's just not the case. I mean, uh, the study also went across the country, which is great.
2: Yeah, the thing that, that really stands out to me is that they say the government focuses on the demand for housing. And that's why they bring in taxes on foreign buyers. They put in uh, huge support for Canadian first-time buyers, supposedly to help them. But unfortunately, they argue with limited supply, such measures are counterproductive and actually lead to higher prices.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was the thing, as you say, when they bring in those kind of measures, they say we're helping first-time buyers. I said, well, what are they going to buy? you know, yeah. where are they going to go? Because we don't have, a, you know, the supply. And I know there's the odd study that says, uh, you know, it's not really a supply problem. And I say to them, you brought in 1,050,000 people last year, where are they going to live? You know, that's an absurd argument to me now. When you look at the immigration, and the newcomers to the country, you know, student visas, people decide to stay, all of those good things. But we all got to live somewhere.
2: Well, and the, the 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 question is then, you know, how do we get uh, better supply? And so the, the C.D. Howe argues in the report that the cost of barriers to land access show that the regulatory burden now makes up 50 percent of the cost of housing in Vancouver. I mean, that blows my mind, 50 percent and more than 20 percent in Toronto and even places like Abbotsford, Victoria, Kelowna, Regina, Calgary, Toronto, Ottawa. New home buyers paid an average of an extra 230000 on a new house because of limits on new building.
0: And, and uh, those are great stats. And, you know, it's interesting. I've been seeing some comparisons, you know, on the 49th parallel, a uh, house, uh, you know, on the Canadian side versus a house on the American side. And it's much less on the American side in most cases in virtually all cases. But this isn't mentioned, the very part that you're saying that you could take you know, the average eight Canadian urban areas, the ones, you know, whether you're talking uh, Calgary or you go to Regina, you can go to Ottawa, Gatineau, you can go to Toronto, and the average is 230,000 extra on a new house. And, and, you know, a lot of that's that limit on building that you're referring to, Aussie.
2: Yeah, and, that, and that's the average for all those places. Vancouver is 640,000. Yeah. So, I mean, you wonder why we have a $2 million house? Well, Government, and we're not talking about just extra costs in, in development cost charges, and and transfer fees, and rent taxes, and all that. We're talking simply the housing restriction cost. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, as you can By say way, if you it's res- almost
2: the largest internationally.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to yeah, we can now, you know, Canadians seem to like to do that. We're number 1. This is yeah. not an area you want to to win in. And it doesn't really matter where we're looking as you say across the country, but that point that you're making there again has to be reemphasized and that's if you don't have a supply of land, it's very difficult to increase the supply of housing. You know, yeah. and So it's restrictions on that also that has to be more front and center than they are. It's easy to understand uh, that I've got a property purchase tax, or maybe I paid some taxes on building materials, that kind of thing. Maybe not as well understood the number of fees that developers are charged that get passed along. But this is one that rarely gets mentioned. That's why I'm so glad they actually did this study.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's stated differently. A single-family detached home price in Vancouver is sixty percent higher than the actual cost to build it. <laughs> so, wow, wow, I mean, it's, it's you know, I mean, these numbers are almost unbelievable, and and I, it 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 makes uh, it makes you wonder. Well, they say in order to make changes. Uh, but the Government should cut excessive regulations on new housing development projects, lower the upfront costs on home buyers and they say they mm-hmm. should enact a provincially mandated minimum target, delegate enforcement of those targets to neutral adjudicative bodies with the power to impose fi- fines on laggard cities and then reform the upward develop up which you mentioned the upfront development charges on new housing by changing them to utility based user fees rather than have to develop up everything upfront. And so it's um, it's a very interesting report. I would urge everybody to go see the how and and read it because it's a very long, large, detailed report.
0: But the other part is you're just alluding to is it wasn't just a report about saying what's wrong. It said how you could fix it or what's the cost. They said how you could fix it, Uh, you know, but this is the point that you and I've made. And I loved and I love the hate mail I get about this. So please keep sending it. (laughs) They're not serious. We have elected people who are not serious in every area I can think of. In healthcare, and you look at them falling down health care, they can't even get me a passport on time. But I'm saying things like, you know, if it's the federal government's number one agenda and it's the thing you're supposed to say, I should have a T-shirt on that says all I care about is climate change just so I can get in with the in crowd. And yet you got their own environmental commissioner saying, you rank dead last in the G7 in reducing emissions. Oh, by the way, why don't you take a private jet and tell me about it? You know, I'm sorry, but it's just too much. And when we start talking about the impact on food prices and now the impact, it's gonna be a rental squeeze. I think the likes of which we've never seen. And here's the affordability issue coming front and center. And uh, people just have to wake up and still we start demanding more from government. We're not going to get it. And so, <laughs> there's my little rant, Ozzie. I'm sorry about that, but I feel strongly <laughs> about this stuff. Because I think that I think the headlines we've had in the past are going to pale in comparison to the headlines we're going to get about rental shortages, rental prices, affordability. The list will be a long one. And as this report points out, hey, you can go to the most expensive city, Vancouver, but you can also go out uh, to Kelowna, to Regina, to Abbotsford, uh, you know, uh, Calgary. The list is a long one. And uh, we just have to get serious about this issue is my take
2: yeah, no question about it. Mike
0: <laughs> I was gonna say, did I give you a headache? <laughs> I hope I gave some poli- I hope I gave voters a headache because <laughs> we're not serious about these issues, and you can tell I feel passionate about them. Ozzy, I won't I, pro- I promise to behave next week. So thanks very much. And by the way, I- I'm gonna be seeing you on June fifteenth. It's coming up. We've got a Thursday. I'm gonna see the Ozman and his uh, team. Uh, looking forward to doing that, Ozzy, and you know how much we and the Special Olympics people appreciate your constant support. Much appreciated.
2: Oh, we, look, we look very much forward to it. I just, just to stick just for one more moment on on the, the taxing issue. There is mm-hmm. a very old, old story by Jean-Baptiste Colbert who said, The art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest amount of feathers with the least amount of hissing.
0: And they're doing darn well on that score. I know
2: that quote, but hey,
0: look—I still can't believe the vast majority of Canadians on one hand say to the pollsters, "Cost of living is my concern." Oh, yeah. by the way, I'm going to support parties who who increase that or affordable housing is my concern. Well, why don't you look at municipal, provincial, and federal governments and see what they're doing on that score? I mean, yeah, that's a beauty—that they have plucked the goose and the most feathers possible, and we're not squawking yet, or not enough of us. (laughs) Ozzy, look forward to seeing you this week. Go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca, Ozzy Jurek. Let's go live to the trading desk now. I got Victor Adair joining me. You know, Victor, I was thinking of the late, great Jim Dines, God rest his soul, you know, who is obviously big on psychology in the market. And I know that's an aspect that you incorporate to all of your analysis. I mean, you do the charts, et cetera, et cetera. But you look at the psychology in the market. I want to just get your take on that. Last week, we talked about a little FOMO going on for a couple of weeks. You know, those seven stocks or whatever, seven, eight stocks were dominating the market. And then you've got... uh, You know, Jim Thorne always talked about this, too. You've got these money managers not in the market. And as you said, they start stampeding in. And I just want to get your take on the psychology, the overlay for what's going on in the markets.
5: Well, thank you for mentioning Jimmy Dines. I have an autographed copy of his book, uh, Mass Mass Psychology. Psychology. And it is a beauty. Uh, But... let's let's apply it to the markets and why i guess we're talking about psychology is you know you know i'm not a number cruncher kind of guy i look at markets through the lens of psychology i think that's what we're really trading is people's emotions as they show up in the market now there's a subset of people in the market and these are folks that manage other people's money, let's just broadly call them portfolio managers, whether they're working for pension funds or private, whatever. Uh, and these folks are measured against each other. So if your peers are all doing well in the market and you're not, you're out of business or you get fired or whatever, You know the clients take their money away from you. So I think for that class, They had a horrible year last year with both stocks and bonds down, and so they were in kind of a bearish frame of mind when this year started. However, this year, I mean, right now we're up about over 20% on the S&P. The NASDAQ is up closer to 40%, and a lot of these folks are going to be what, in their language, they call it underweight. In other words, they don't own as many stocks as maybe they should. And when they see the market racing away to the upside, even though it's only led by, let's call it, a a couple of handfuls of the high-tech stocks, they're getting left behind and they worry that maybe they're going to be at the back of the pack and they're going to get cold. So what what do they do? They have to chase the markets when the markets are going higher like this.
0: Well, and, and that's, uh, by the way, if people aren't familiar, they hear the term not familiar, window dressing. That's what that's all about. They come to the end of the month and they're going to have to publish a statement. They want to be seen to own some stocks, or maybe if it's been uh, negative, they don't want to be seen to own other stocks. So this plays a huge role. But your point, besides the psychology, is how does it look? You know, I've I got to be seen to be owning these things. And again what does that tell you? Now, I know you use other you know, technical techniques, so it's a little too broad a question, but does that make you, I mean, it's really tough when a momentum trade is going in one direction, you know, um, as, as you've talked about in the past, things can go further and farther in either direction than we anticipate. So maybe, uh, does that encourage you to think about shorting, or you just need to see a lot more evidence, or at least not buying, or not chasing this rally?
5: Yeah, I mean, I have the luxury because I'm only trading my own money. I don't have to be in the market. And yeah. that's a that's a great way to be clear-headed if you don't already have a position. I mean, I often have wondered, you know, if I own something, uh, do I own it or do I like it, I should say, because I own it, you know, or the other yeah. way around? And you can get into that loop. But what we've what we've seen here, I guess, is that these folks have had – justification for being a little bearish. You know, we've seen huge capital flow into money market funds and with T bill yields around 5%, like there is an alternative to being in the stocks, you know, and we've also seen uh, the central banks have raised interest rates very aggressively. And there has been a fear that something is going to break because of this quick ramp up in interest rates. One of the things we're seeing certainly in the commercial real estate sector is that lenders who are, I should say, the borrowers who are looking forward maybe to next year having to roll over a loan. They're out hunting for lenders right now, and they're, they're, they're not finding a lot. You know? So there's going to be there's some real worry that the wrapping up of interest rates the way it happened may push the economy into a recession, and you know, then you don't want to be an owner of stocks, certainly not growth stocks.
0: You know, one of the things that you had on your blog, VictorAdair.ca, is, you know, you looked at that group of stocks, you know, we all know their names, you know, Amazon, Alphabet, uh, Microsoft, Apple, etc. And we know that they've been high flyers, but you would put something, if you take those eight stocks out, we got a 2% gain in the S&P. So maybe people shouldn't be too overwhelmed, uh, you know, by the momentum. Yeah, it's... Everybody
5: knows that it's been this handful of major stocks that have driven the market higher. The the breadth, as they call it, is is horrible here. I look at different technical indicators, and it tells me we may be getting extended to the upside. So given that I don't need to be in the market, long or short, I am... I'm just not interested in chasing. I'm not going to be a buyer here. What I am looking for is the first little signs that maybe the rally is run out of steam. And then I can make a what I would call a low risk bet where, you know, I'm I'm willing to risk a few bucks and think I may may be able to make a lot more.
0: Well, I'll be with you on that one. And you'll be with us telling us all about that stuff, Victor. But I know you got to go. You got to get out of here. You got a golf tournament today. We can't let you and, you. and I know you. You need the practice range. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I do. I do. <laughs> so I, you'll be I, you'll, you'll be at Parkdale Oceanside Golf Tournament at Pheasant Glen. Uh, so Vic, uh, uh, again, it's been. A, I know the tournament's uh, a great success, but they can still do a little more.
5: Yeah, this is, as I've said, and I'm I'm grateful to you for allowing me to promote this on your show. But honestly, there's 50 special needs kids in the Oceanside area here. And this is the one and only event we have every year to raise money, to pay for the projects and the trips and everything else these kids go on. I'm happy as a clam, you know, that the golf tournament is sold out. Even if you want to play, we haven't got room for you. But if your heart is open and you'd like to send some money, you can still Google Oceanside Special Olympics and send those folks the money and it'll be really, really appreciated.
0: Well, I might say for the entire Special Olympics, uh, our families, our individual athletes don't pay for transportation or if there's a games, you know, there's food and accommodation, they don't pay, you know, and this is where it comes from. So it's important stuff. Vic, I'll see you later today. I'll see you. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And for it, I'm going to go back to the world of sports. Now look, yeah, the signing of Lionel Messi in Miami shocked the sporting world. But I don't even think it rivals the stunning news this week that the PGA Tour and Live Golf are merging. Come on, this comes after a year of acrimony, vitriol from the PGA and its top players, accusing the Saudis of human rights abuses, murder, complicity in 9-11, unequal rights for women, attacks on gay people. I mean, the PGA was calling it blood money. You know, this is after a year, by the way, of the top players in the PGA turning down tens of millions of dollars to plan the live tour. And the PGA is now merging. And by the way, even its biggest stars like Roy McElroy Tiger Woods, were not told about this in advance. Neither was Live Commissioner Greg Norman. I mean, come on, this could be the epitome of a backroom deal where money trump principle. I mean, the new golf entity combines the golf-related businesses with, uh, from the PGA with Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund. They get all the commercial business rights of the PGA and the DP World Tours. And it's going to be in a for-profit entity now, though. And that's different. The PGA was a non-profit entity with money-supporting charities. But here's the part. PGA Tour Commissioner accurately put it. He said, I recognize that people are going to call me a hypocrite. Uh, yeah. But what he said next is worth noting. In referring to his constant attacks against the Saudi money in the live tour, he went on to state that when you're trying to beat somebody in a public relations war, you use whatever arguments you can, whether or not you truly believe them. In other words, hey, you've got to be prepared to lie. That's an unethical approach we're all too familiar with in politics. Come on, it's an appalling approach that is fully supported by the people who put their faith and their uh, loyalty to a political tribe above all else. And it happens on both the right and the left. But come on, given the vitriol between the PGA and Live, I can't think of a more blatant example of selling out. Maybe not even in the world of politics. And just like businesses, whether it's Nike or Apple, claim in ignoring the human rights abuses, including, you know, in China, including use of slave labor in their supply chains or systematic rate of Uyghur women in concentration camps, the PGA says it's going to try to improve human rights in Saudi Arabia by what it calls constructive engagement. An abject failure, by the way, when it came to China and Cuba. But when there's this much money involved, I guess it's pretty easy to find a rationale, even if it's steeped in enough BS to fertilize the world. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. I want to remind you to go to Mike's Money Talks, .ca, but also join us on Twitter, join us on Facebook, because this is a chance to get updated on all sorts of issues that literally don't make the mainstream press. I'm talking about Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. And just one more thing. i got to thank all the people. Looking forward to seeing them on uh, Thursday, June 15th, for the Special Olympics Golf Tournament. It's going to be terrific. And I'm going up to play, by the way, in the Oceanside Golf Tournament today, Saturday and looking forward to hacking around there. But I wanna thank all of the supporters for that, all the businesses for that. I can't tell you how much it means.